following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. John chapter 2 verses 13 through 25. When it was almost time when it was when it, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Those who made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts both sheep and cattle, he'd scatter the coins of the money changers and overturn their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume you. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray. Um, Father, I ask in Jesus' name um, that your Holy Spirit um, would be the teacher, would give instruction today. Uh, Father, I'm even just caught in my own little world um, and just um, asking for the songs that we sang, um, Andrew's um, um, leading uh, through the song to talk about um, uh, Hagar and Ishmael and their story, Lord. Um, so much today is resonating with the brokenhearted. So much of this morning has resonated with the fact that we still are in storms in this life. Um, yet, Jesus Christ. Um, Father, I ask that today we can see the importance of Jesus. I ask that today people would believe in Jesus. And I ask today that for those of us that believe on Jesus, that we would make sure that our footing is sure and strong on him and that we haven't placed our strength and our hope in something else. And so, Lord, we love you, and we ask your direction over this teaching today. In Christ's name, amen. John has already done so much in his letter, but in the first chapter, he introduced us to a character named Nathaniel. And if you've heard any of the other teachings, you know that he said something very specific to Nathaniel that, again, in this letter, if we lose sight of chapter 1, we are going to very quickly miss out on so much as happening throughout the entire letter that John has written. Because he says to Nathaniel, if you follow me, you're going to have Jacob and Esau moments. What did that mean? Do you guys remember? 
That means that when they were walking around with Jesus, they were going to have moments where it was like the angels were descending and ascending on Jesus Christ himself, which means in a very Jewish visual, um, was a probably more of a colloquialism or idiom that they may have understood more deeply than we can understand it, is that John was, was sharing this story again with the people that were, he was writing to, but for Nathaniel specifically, and for the other early disciples that were around Jesus, Jesus was making a direct statement to them, if you do follow me, I promise you, you're going to see heaven and earth open up around me. The first scene of that was the, the wine at the wedding. They ran out on the third day, which I think is really interesting that it was the third day of this week-long wedding that they ran out of wine. But then at the same time, Jesus turns water in the wine, and it's the best wine that they had in the entire party. And now we find ourselves in a moment where Jesus has now gone into the temple and has begun turning the tables over and making a huge scene. Now, let me just say a couple of things to you. Most of us being non-Jewish, there's a few of you in here that have some Jewish roots, we have no temple concept. I mean, that is like us saying, hey, there's a church on the corner for most of us. That's the mindset that we have. This was no church on the corner. This was a campus the size of M&T Bank Stadium and all of the parking lots around it. That's how big the Temple Mount was. So for those of you that have had an opportunity to make your way over to M&T Bank Stadium or make your way over to Camden Yards and, and have the sidewalk walking between those two stadiums, however long it would take you to go from Camden Yards to your seat in M&T Bank Stadium is how long it would take you to walk from one side of the temple grounds to the other. It was a massive structure. And it says that Jesus was running around in that environment, turning things over. And most of us picture it like this room. Oh, it's like, oh, the pastor came over and knocked over a chair. Like, like, like that. wow, that took so much effort, right? But now imagine Jesus is putting in some serious effort if he's making a disruption across the entire temple. That is a lot of footwork. Jesus was in good shape in order to be able to spend the day running around and doing all of that, he would easily have qualified for the New York City Marathon, right? And so, but here's the thing is there's no illustration really that I can come up with today that's even comparable. For those of you that have sold your life out to education or employment at Johns Hopkins, there might be a moment where I could just pick an event that you know that there's going to be thousands of your coworkers there and just say, imagine you were the one that walked in, started turning over the tables, knocking over all the expensive banners, pushing over all the coffee carts, knocking over all the medical displays, and say, curse you, John Hopkins! You are the worst thing for the world! And you're running around knocking it all over all day long in the entire campus, and you are constant, and you're all by yourself doing all of this, talking about the evil that you're doing in the world. That might be remotely close to what it would have felt like for Jesus to go through the temple knocking over tables, because the temple was not just a corner church. This was a 
cultural center for their entire people. It was the heartbeat of Jerusalem. It was the worship center. It was the source of music. It was the source of where they wrestled with their politics. It was the source of where they um, tried to reconcile the ills and the injustices in their society. It's the ways that they would celebrate the mourning of people's loss as well as the celebrating of birth of new life. It was the center for all of their celebration. It was the place where you could find more animals alive and dead than any animal shelter in the city of Baltimore. This place was loaded with more animals than are probably in the Baltimore Zoo. This was a massive facility that was dealing with everything that had anything to do with the life of the nation of Israel. It was more importantly the place where Israel's God dwelt. Most of us can't picture that because we have a little bit of a dis functional relationship to God's presence in a church building because we now know that we are the church. We're the temple of the living God. So the sacredness of space is no longer quite what it used to be until a tragedy comes in and you look for a sacred space to sit in in quiet prayer with candlelight. And then we look to our historic churches as places to go to find quiet and and contemplative prayer because that's kind of what we're looking for. Well, in the temple, you got all of that. It was where the Yahweh promised to live in their midst if they continued to be a light to other nations. It was the focal point of their nation. And it was almost like as if anybody, they would meet an international person from another country and they'd be like, oh, have you been to our temple yet? It wasn't, it wouldn't be like people saying, hey, have you been to the inner harbor like, I mean, it was, it was like, where do you tell people to go when they first come to Baltimore? You know me, my choice is Vaccaro's. You know, it's like, hey, if you're new to Baltimore, yeah, go to Vaccaro's. You know, it's like, it's just natural. But for a Jewish person, it would have been, hey, the temple. But there was this little to unknown prophet from Galilee at this time that decides to go into this temple and just totally destroy it. Constant disruption. For those of us that have been through the Gospels before, this is a very easy-to-overlook passage of Scripture because it's lost its shock effect on us. But there's three questions that I really think are dealt with in this passage that I think that we need to talk about so that you and I can understand a little bit more about what this really means for you and I. What was wrong with the temple is the first question. And then why did Jesus do what he did is the second question. And what does his answer mean when they ask him for a sign? I mean, some of you probably have been through this passage enough to know, well, I know why he did this. I know why he did that. But if we're not careful, we can just totally make this relevant for them and we totally miss what it could mean for us. There's no doubt what John thinks that it all means. He clarifies it very quickly when he just says, oh, he was talking about his own death and resurrection, right? So he, even in the midst of the letter, decides, you know what, I don't want to leave any grounds for confusion that, that this story is about the physical temple itself. It's is about the temple of the living God that's inhabiting Jesus Christ. So he quickly just gets to the point in this letter. But this was Passover time which is a whole other mess for those of us that aren't Jewish because we just can't fathom the importance of this celebration. This was more important than the Super Bowl to a football fan. It's more important than the SEC championship game to people in the South. It is more important than the Olympics that come around every four years. The Passover was the time where God showed up and he freed their people from slavery. He did it powerfully. 
He showed up in a personal way to them. It was a chance for them to celebrate their liberation, a chance to celebrate their freedom. And this amazing, I mean, for over 400 years, they only had made bricks. What did their dad do? Made bricks. What did their grandfather do? Make bricks. What did their great-grandfather do? Make bricks. What did their great-great-grandfather do? Make bricks. And then liberation. Now they're in the wilderness like, we don't need to make bricks. What do we do? They had to learn a whole new way of living. Some of you in this room come from countries, and you're even a refugee yourself. And you know what it is like to have your life one way and then uprooted and placed somewhere else. And now you're trying to make sense of life. You might get Passover a little bit better than the rest of us. But this was a day where they once were fully in slavery. And then the next day, they are watching God destroy their enemies in the Red Sea. And then they're singing songs of hallelujah. And so annually, this was a massive celebration. And so when we look at this particular passage of Scripture, John wants us to understand that Jesus is the new temple and that he brings meaning to Passover. Jesus is bringing the meaning to Passover. It's in these very moments of Passover. Actually, Passover is in the Gospel of John three times. It's here in chapter 2, it's in chapter 6, and then it is fully vested with Jesus going to the cross in John, starting in John chapter 12. And so we'll have a lot of moments in the next few months to begin to see the importance of us understanding Passover so that we can understand the importance of Jesus because there's so many of you in this room that still need to believe in Jesus. And I believe John is writing this letter in a way that you can believe. And then the rest of us, we not only just need to believe in Jesus, we need to now grow in maturity of what that is. And if we understand Passover, we're going to be more mature. And that's what our heart's desire is, is to be more mature in Jesus Christ. I believe this passage is also hinting very strongly that Jesus is the temple that he is clearing out the corruption in that current temple as a symbol that he was preparing you and I to get the stuff cleaned out of us so that the Holy Spirit of God could inhabit us as well. So much of that is talked about here. So much of the the corruption in the temple was around trade and their use of finances, was around the ways that they were manipulating the poor. It was ways around the abuses of authority, even the misuse of scriptures, and so many things that were going on. We could talk all day long, going list after list after list after list of things that they were doing that were against the purpose of the temple and what it was supposed to be used for. But this meaning that's beginning to grow here, almost like, I remember, like, I think it was in kindergarten. It may have been first grade, but I'm just going to say kindergarten because I was a bright student. Um, They gave us a seed, and we planted it in topsoil in like a little styrofoam cup because that was back before they knew that styrofoam was really bad for our environment. And so we grew green items in styrofoam. Um, And so we would water it, and then what ended up happening you next you know you see a little green shoot come up, and then before long you actually can identify the type of plant it is. But when you were given the seed, you had no idea what the plant was. You just put it in the ground and watered it and watched it. And it wasn't until it broke through the ground that you're like, wait a minute, I got a tomato seed. I'm growing a tomato plant. It's not going to stay in my styrofoam cup very long. I'm going to need to transplant it to something better for its environment. This passage, John chapter two is that seed finally breaking through the ground and we're now being able to identify it. And that identifying characteristic is is Jesus is the Son of God. 
He is the inhabitants of heaven on earth. He is where it all comes together. And now we're starting to see these shoots coming up in Jesus. But we're also seeing a foretaste of Jesus' fate. He's very cryptic in his response about this sign, about the temple being torn down, so much so that the guy's like, it took 46 years to build this. And it's like Herod started it, and then Herod's son's getting to finish it. But that's what it took, 46 years. It's not like the towers they're building in the Inner Harbor, where it's a lot one day, and then 12 months later, they're sp- you're, you're spending $500,000 to buy a condo in it. It's like it's crazy how fast they're putting things up. That's a modern-day marvel. It was, not the old, it was not this first century construction. 46 years. Could you imagine? You could have been one of the first people to lay a stone, and you never got to see it finished. And so this person is listening to Jesus say, I'm going to tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days. And the guy was like, yeah, right. My dad started the construction of this temple, and I'm just now putting in the stained glass, which they didn't have stained glass. But but I'm just now putting in the final touches, and we're getting ready to dedicate this thing, and it's taken us 46 years to get there. And they didn't get the fact that Jesus was saying, no, wait, this is just brick and mortar. I'm the temple. This is just the structure I'm the temple. And now we're getting a chance to get a glimpse of if Jesus is the temple and we're in Jesus, then what do we become a part of? And we're getting more and a more and a stronger, clearer picture about what the death and resurrection of Jesus is actually going to do in those three days. But if he is the true temple, he is the word made flesh, John chapter 1, the place where the glory of God is chosen to make his dwelling, which is Jewish language for the importance of that sacred space. But his death, burial, and resurrection were going to bring life back to this. And there's so many themes that John has introduced here in the first two chapters that we're going to get a chance to develop. But I think it's really important that you catch how he ended chapter 2. Do you remember the final words that were Sarah read to us? She said this, And now while he was in Jerusalem at Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Did you catch that? So people were seeing the display of heaven and earth present in Jesus, and they were like, yes. They believed. They didn't continue to ask questions. They just believed. Then he goes on to say, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all the people. Did you catch that? He knew all the people. Like Nathaniel. Nathaniel's like, hey, I'm looking for the Messiah. He's like, I knew. I already saw you sitting under the tree. And Nathaniel was like, what? How could you be looking for me when I was looking for you? How did you know where I was? How did you know what I was wearing? How did you know what tree I was under? I mean, are you getting this picture? Is that God sees us. That's what Andrew was referring to in the um, Hagar and Ishmael story. Is like we have a God that sees us all the time. That can bring fear to some of us in this room right now knowing that God sees us all of the time. So when you come to him in a moment of joy, hey, I got a promotion. You know, yep, I was there. And he still celebrates with us, but I'm not telling him news. Like, oh, yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. That's not Jesus. Jesus is like, hey, you got a job. I'm like, how did you know? You know, I mean, Jesus is also the one there saying, stop your confession. I know what you're saying. Like the prodigal son coming home. Shut him off mid-sentence. I know where you've been. I know what you've done, but I see in your heart you're coming back to me. Let's put some new clothes on you and get you freshened up. Let's eat, right? 
That's God. That's what Jesus is being displayed as in this second chapter. And he's like, look, I don't need the testimony of mankind because he already knew each and every person. John ends with this hint as to how people should respond. And this hint is trust him. This is my thing for all of you in here today. There's many of you that are confused about all the world religions. And if I could just say something to all of you, just trust Jesus. Heaven and earth comes together. And you don't have to have an answer for how all the other religions get it wrong. Really, what we should do one Sunday is talk about what a lot of the world religions are doing right, yet Jesus. Okay, I want you guys to understand this. It's not a, we have to disprove why you shouldn't believe in everybody else, but let's just see how heaven and earth comes together in Jesus. Okay, let's look at how heaven and earth has come together in Christ and stop trying to pick and choose between all these different world religions when realize that I have seen the power and the glory of God displayed in him. And so I have to believe in him because I've seen it displayed in him. There's, how else can you do that? I had a chance to talk to one of your dads here recently, and I'm still trying to put names and faces together. But one of you that's a Hopkins family, your dad's studying to be a church planning missionary overseas, especially in the 1040 window. And he was sharing with me the stories of how he goes through these Muslim communities, and they are looking for ways to talk about Jesus in a way, number one, that's not life-threatening, and number two is right and so what they realized was is because they're Asian, and they, when people in a Muslim country see them, they think, oh, you're from China. And he's like, no, I'm from Taiwan. <laughs> um, but to them, they're like, oh, you, you, you look like you're Chinese. And that's how we treat each other. So I'm glad to know that just because I'm white, that I, when I look at somebody like, oh, you look like, you know, no, I'm not from there. <laughs> I'm like, sorry. Um, that's what I've learned in our Patterson Church family is that there's people from Mexico and Guatemala and Colombia, and they have pride in their nations, right? And you can't just label them inappropriately. So this guy's like, hey, look, when I go into these Muslim communities, and they call me Chinese, but I'm really Taiwanese, but they don't expect me to say Jesus because that's a white man's religion. But yet they see Jesus in me differently. And then the other thing he said was really interesting. He's like, you know what we do? We go into the village, and we just find the sick, and we just lay hands on them and pray for them. And when they're healed, their family comes to us and says, you're God is the one true God. That's their evangelism strategy. I mean, how do you argue when heaven and earth come together? How do you argue that? I don't want to believe in your God even though he just healed my son. I don't want to believe in your God because he just healed my mom. I mean, I'm gonna, people are going to be like, no, that's the power of God on display, and that's the moment where heaven and earth comes together. And so I believe John here is continuing to extend an invitation to say, trust him, believe in him, because Jesus already knows who you are and he already has something miraculously planned out for you. And so let, let, me, let, me, let me take this approach of John here before we have our brunch time together. And let me just say this. You guys familiar with the, the popularity of what's called an open letter nowadays? That's according to um, Webster, an open letter is a published letter of protest or appeal usually addressed to an individual, but it's intended for the general public. It's sort of like you decide to write a letter to Johns Hopkins talking about the fact that they make you work 20 hours a day in a 24-hour day, and then they expect you to show up on time the next day and do that for 20 straight days, and then they never give you a day off. 
And then so you realize it's not 20 straight. So you get my point. And so you write whomever it is that's your chief at Hopkins a letter, but you don't address it to them. You address it to everybody in Baltimore because you get it in the Baltimore Sun. An open letter to, and you identify them. That's becoming very popular today. You guys feeling me there? I mean, it's, a lot of people are doing that. I almost did that recently with my alma mater in some of the things that were happening and coming out of that. So I know the desires and the temptations of writing some people an open letter. You're like, I know you're not going to read it, but I'm going to make sure it draws attention to it so that I know you end up reading it, right? Because of the, the attraction and the draw. I believe John has a specific audience in place here, but it is now open to the general public, and we're getting a chance to benefit from his open letter. But can I say something that's a little bit different. I want you guys to get this. Because John's letter is included in the Bible, we lose the impact of it because it's in the Bible. Because there are a lot of you in here right now because John is in the Bible, you don't give it much credit as a powerful open letter. Because you're like, I don't believe the Bible. I'm, a, I'm okay with Jesus, but man, I'm not real sure about this Bible thing. I'm not real sure about the way the Bible's been used. I mean, people have been messing with it for a while, and you've done enough research to know that people have been messing with translations, and you can go to the Bible Museum and see Bibles that were printed um, in Europe that, that were intentionally used to take words about slavery out to have a slavery um, Bible that could go around and people could read it and not feel convicted about the way they were treating other human beings. And so you know enough. And if, and if you don't, you now know, because <laughs> I just told you, that there's, that there's a lot of doubt around the Bible. Can I say this? The Bible is for those of you that believe. The Bible is not for the world. The church is for the world. The church is the letter to the world. The church should be an open letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 2, it says this, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living, living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. The church is the letter to the world. You and I, because of our belief in Jesus Christ, can take and go into the scriptures, can wrestle in the tensions of it, knowing that we've got to start with Jesus and then work our ways out. If we just decide to dive into the Old Testament, who knows what you're going to read and even have beginning to understand. But the world doesn't need us to just throw the Bible at them, which I do believe that there's a need to have the Bible available in every language because people are going to believe in Jesus and are going to need to know what to do. But the invitation to the world is the church. That's you. It's not me as the pastor. I am a part of it, but it's not my responsibility to always have a good sermon and to look kept so that people come to church and I'm not a distraction from Jesus. No, the distraction from Jesus is when our words and our lives do not line up with Jesus' words in life. And then the world's like, well, we can't believe the Bible because look at the church. Those people claim to believe in Jesus, but they're not acting anything like him. But yet there's no more powerful tool that when heaven and earth come together around us and people can see in us. This is why John wrote this letter, John 20, verses 30 through 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
John is writing this open letter for you and I so that you and I can have life in his name. And life in his name, according to the response to Jesus, was labeled the church. This group of people that were passionately interested in pursuing Jesus Christ. We are in a season of time where we're renewing our membership. We call it covenant here at the Gallery Church. We do this not because it's just church tradition, but we do this because it means something when you and I look each other in the face and we make a commitment to one another. It's, not, it's, 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 it's one thing to just say, let me just show up and be a part But it's another thing to look at somebody in the face and say, you're my brother and my sister, and I am responsible to you. I'm going to have your back on your good days and bad days. I'm going to be there when you have needs. We're going to have people like Cameron, who's been serving in our deacon capacity, walking with our team so that we can know what to collect to better serve one another because people have said, I want to help strengthen the family. I don't want to just have the benefits of the family. I want to be a part of it. So the formal proclamation of us making a covenant or even writing them out, which are on the Lord's tables, and actually signing them is our way of declaring that this commitment to Jesus Christ and to his church is a really serious part of my life. And so a lot of times it's easy not to sign it because we really don't want it to be a serious part of our life. We want the benefits of church, but we don't want the power of God to really flow through us. But I'm just saying, who amongst us is saying, I really want the power of God to be fully manifested in our church family? What would it look like for the testimony of our church to be? People are healed there. What would it look like for people to come away saying, you know what, I was looking at all these other world religions, but those people have some kind of God power. They say it's Jesus. Man, I need to find this Jesus. What would it look like for us to take on the full power of Christ? He truly liberates us. He truly sets us free. Not just to have freedom for freedom's sake, but to have life for others' sake. He wants us to be life-reproducing people, where people are gaining life from being around us. And this is all in John chapter 2. Can you believe it? Let's pray. Father, We want our lives to be an open letter. As painful as that might be, even for me to say this week, Father, we want to be read by the people around us. We want people to see life in us. Father, I pray right now for those that need to believe in Jesus, that there would be nothing that hinders them from believing today, that they would just, they would see Christ and believe in Christ, and they would set that in motion. Father, I also pray for those of us in here today that have seen Jesus, but man, the storms of life are rocking our faith. There is power in the resurrected life of Jesus, and we need the power of the resurrected life in us. So, Lord, I pray that today that uh, your will would be done in our hearts, 
that you would quiet our minds so that we can see you clearly. And Lord, we thank you so much for John's letter to us. So Lord, help us to find all the meanings of each chapter and verse as we go through it. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.